The property boom of 2021 was remarkable for a number of reasons, and possibly the most remarkable was the fact that regional Australia outperformed the capital cities in both sale and rental price growth. So now that this boom is done and dusted, is a big correction to be expected in regional markets. And on the rental front, it's now well accepted that there's a severe stock shortage pretty much everywhere, and capital city rents are tipped to rise sharply as we reopen the immigration gates, which of course is welcome news to many investors who have seen rents decline substantially over the past decade. But what else can we look forward to in 2023? Welcome to the elephant in the room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Awards. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. We're joined today by Paul Ryan, an economist at REA, specialising in housing, finance, market forecasting and big data analysis, just the stuff we love. Before joining REA in December 2020, Paul spent a decade at the Reserve Bank of Australia, conducting research on the Australian economy, focusing on housing markets, lending risks and regulatory effects on property markets. What an excellent background to have for today's discussion. Thanks so much for joining us today, Paul. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Paul, so good to have you on. I've read a few articles over over the years of yours and, um, yeah, I've always sort of found the insights, you know, quite useful because there's different takes on things and uh, rather than the typical, this is how much medians are going up, et cetera. Um, I mean, it might be interesting actually to start there. You know, you spent a decade at the RBA and, I mean, that's interesting in itself, especially what the RBA has done this year and we can, we can have a bit of a off-air sort of, you know, chat around how they're going and what they've done and the thinking around that. But, what made you go to the dark side, I guess? You know, you stepped out of sort of, you know, policy at the RBA to go into a, a big tech company like REA and um, what made you make that move and what sort of the sort of the learnings, I guess, that, are, that surprised you? You know, you because you're looking at completely different data set um, and I'd argue probably the, the best data set in the country, um, to be honest. If, if I could get access to what people are doing on the REA platform, you'd have amazing insights at your fingertips. So what are some of the things you didn't know you... You know, you didn't know, you didn't know. Like, I think that's really interesting when you, you sort of get access to what you've got, what you can see. Yeah, I, I think you, you've you've given the job pitch already. I think the thing that pulled me across, so I was at, I was at the Reserve Bank. Um, I ended up somewhat by chance doing a lot of um, housing projects and then yep. um, worked quite a long time on, on borrower risks and how, I guess, um, so much of kind of um, financial risks in Australia is linked to housing. And so, so it's kind of the, the underpinning of the financial system in Australia, in particular, is the housing market. So, so it's very important. Um, it's also super important to people, and that's mm. you know, what economics is fundamentally uh, about. You know, more than half of household wealth is in in the housing stock in Australia. Uh, but yeah, REA, it, it was the data. That's the big pitch. Um, a combination of the data and also the fact that, um, from my viewpoint as kind of a property market researcher, seeing that actually the the narrative around the property market was, in my view, not as sophisticated as it could be. I think yep. the things that really interest me about the property market are not these questions about, you know, prices up, prices down, mm. um, what, you know, regions, this, regions, that. It's It's more about what does this say about how people's preferences are changing and how 
how they're living their lives through property, which is an expression of kind of where people want to live in relation to other people and in relation to their work. Um, what 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 is changing in that? And and I mean, the COVID period has been the best example of this. It's been the biggest preference shift in housing that we've seen at least since the Second World War. So you joined at a brilliant time then, didn't you? <laughs> the it's sort of end of twenty twenty, and it's like your music to my ears, and certainly Chris's as well. It's like thinking differently beyond just the normal headline stuff. And and I know that in your articles, you seem to go to great pains to really explain what the data means and sort of lift the lid on it a little bit, which is a lot of what we like to do on this podcast. So I've, I love that. I just go, oh, my God, oh, my God, there's like a kindred spirit here, somebody who actually cares about the thinking and gets and, and also wants your readers to think. I think that's quite important. Yeah. Well, that's what it says to me anyway. We've got a whole bunch of questions to ask you, but I'm just going to fast forward really to what we had in our, the end of our list, which was about an article you wrote recently about sort of five um, ways in which we change as a result of COVID. And we've discussed these things ad nauseum on the podcast. But I, what I thought was interesting, so we, if we dig into that, we go, oh, we know that people moved away from the cities. We know that work from home meant that people had more flexibility in where they could live. We know that people wanted bigger houses because they had to spend more time in them, working, juggling, homeschooling, all that sort of love. So we know all these things. And we are obviously very curious as to how many of those sort of changes are fundamental versus uh, reactive, right? But one thing that really I thought was quite fascinating was that if everyone, and, and I observed this myself, if everyone's leaving the cities, right, everyone's moving to the regions, everyone's getting away from apartments, all that sort of stuff, is, and you think about what it was like during lockdown and the reasons that people want to separate from other people, then immediately afterwards you would imagine that prices in the capital cities will be start to fall and yet we had populations declining in say Sydney and Melbourne in particular and yet prices were still rising and then you had this really interesting chart there that talked that showed that the premium paid to avoid a commute basically seems unaffected um that's not how you called it but that's the way I look at it will I pay more to avoid the commute basically people are still paying to avoid a commute so Tell me, what do you, why do you think that's the case? And were you as fascinated by that as I obviously am? Uh, yes, no, absolutely. I, I think this is one of the most interesting things I've looked at because it's um, the opposite to what I expected. I, I think um, I think one of the things I really love doing is these anecdotes about the property market. Let's let's yep. see what they mean in the data. Mm. Um, what what does that actually play out? And this um, this distance thing really surprised me. So the result of this is that. Throughout this COVID period, um, we saw people moving further away from cities. We saw lockdowns and things like that. And one of the the big narratives that people were saying is that, well, you know, if people are only working in the office a day a week, two days a week, um, this means people are more willing to pay more for la- for homes further away from the CBD because they're not commuting every day. Sounds perfectly reasonable. Mm. And in the data, that's not the case at all, um, which is which is really surprising. It is the the amount people are willing to pay for different distances um, further from the CBD is essentially unchanged from pre-pandemic. But what has changed is that people are willing to pay more for larger homes. That's the big shift. Mm. And there's more larger homes further from CBDs than close in. Um, so what what the kind of data tells us is that actually people are preferencing home size. And so big homes close to CBDs have also increased in value quite significantly over this reassessment of kind of the, the commuting distance. So yeah, I mean, as that's so. Let's say you had a three-bedroom house or a two-bedroom house in the outskirts versus a two-bedroom house in the city. Your, your price growth probably would have, you know, you still be getting uh, a bigger 
uh, growth. The growth rate still be bigger in the sort of the inner ring. But if, for example, you had a four-bedroom house in the outer ring for the last few years, your price growth would, would have outperformed maybe a two-bed, right, in near the city. You know what I mean? Like, so people were, yep. you know, as a percentage, yes. If, so if you had the, the bigger houses in the outer, outskirts, you really would have benefited in the last few years. But that doesn't mean the whole of that suburb and the, the median values would have went up because a bigger portion of the four beds would have sold. So, you, so it really skewed the numbers, I guess. So people thought that the outer ring suburbs were going up a lot more than the inner ring. Well, no, only if you had a bigger house. Is that sort of what your learnings <laughs> were? Broadly speaking, yeah, exactly right. So it's it's the fact that they're, if you're in an outer ring suburb, more houses are three-bedroom or four-bedroom houses um, and more of those houses across all across the city have done better and so proportionally those suburbs have done better in a big part because they've got more of the dwelling stock that people want now in this kind of post-pandemic world and it seems to be persistent so the that premium has come off a little bit but it's still really high given how kind of society has gone back broadly to normal this year Mm. with the regional movement so we're saying it's quite interesting this year i mean it sort of stopped and start like our clients say yeah we were up to move to central coast or wollongong and then actually no we don't want to do that right now because we're worried about return to work and what work's going to be and then actually no we're going to do it again and it sort of has done that for the last two years i think at the moment it's it's really mixed i think some clients are getting great flexibility at work and they're seeing it as an opportunity as there's less demand in the the first tier regions like the Wollongongs and Central Coast or Geelongs, while demand's a little bit weaker, um, it's a good opportunity. But then we're still getting a lot of people who are getting very, um, you know, different sort of return to work policies and mm. flexibility, et cetera. I think you did a really interesting article, which I thought, um, which showed that a lot of the industries, you know, there's lots of industries that, you know, the proportion of jobs aren't very... Um, won't allow you to do remote work, right? Um, and so there's only a number of industries that a big portion of people can do remote work. Is that sort of... Yeah, I think that's right. And and we've got to remember that like this kind of regional push throughout the pandemic, this isn't like everyone moving to the regions or a big portion of people. It's just enough more, like enough additional demand for what are reasonably small regions to put a, a big pressure on those local housing markets because they're small yeah. housing markets in general. Um I think the regional story is a, diff- a difficult one to disentangle. Like, is that going to reverse now that, that the cities are back and open and people get, you know, we know that there are all these, like what economists call agglomeration effects of living in cities, which is you're close to other people who are high productivity people and inter- inter- interacting with those people um, basically makes you a better employee. And, and that's why we see incomes are much higher in cities than they are in regional areas. Has work from home broken that system that we're kind of all of western societies relied on for hundreds of years now um it's it's a little too early to tell um we have seen a bit of a pullback so a lot of the um regional areas that saw really high price growth throughout the pandemic have seen have started to see prices come back a bit more than other regions um, yeah. but but i think anecdotally um, we know that there's still lots of companies and and workers that are still working through what is their like permanent work from home or or um hybrid working looking like in the future so i think there's still kind of a, a big section of populace in as you say only certain industries it tends to be white color industries where people tend to live close to the city generally and get those benefits from living close to the city um, but some portion of those people will be sorting out their arrangements and, and next time they move as, as their kind of life circumstances would say hey this is a good time for us to upgrade and have a bigger home things like starting families for instance is, is a thing that sparks those kind of decisions um, there's likely to be more people that are going to be considering regional areas, I think, forever now. I think regional areas are just 
going to be um, higher in prominence in people's um, buying decisions. So you're calling it? You you reckon this is permanent? To to some extent, probably not to the extent that we saw over the, to the past two years. Do you think the irony though is that the the people who are currently living as closer to the CBD are the people who could potentially live the furthest away from the CBD. So their, <laughs> their, their roles and their jobs are the ones that are the most chance that they could be remote, but then they're living in the, you know, the, the most commutable locations. Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge irony there. You know, you, you think about people in professional services, people in IT, things like that. Um, yeah, pe- people making very high incomes. And that's that's one of the concerns in regional areas. Is you've got people with very high incomes who have been able to use those incomes in places with yeah. lower average incomes. Um, yeah, 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 it's not... If you were going to stereotype, it's not those people in the kind of middle outer ring um parts of cities that are doing, you know, jobs where they're um, interacting with people or working on things, you know, manufacturing or uh, teaching services jobs, things like that. They are people who can't work remotely. So, yeah, it's an interesting irony that you're going from being as close to the action as possible to being as far away from the action as possible. It might be one of the reasons you want to, you know, because, and I know myself, obviously, I, I'm, I live in the inner city. I couldn't deal with suburbia. I grew up in suburbia. I could not live in suburbia now, but I could definitely live in some regional areas, right? And I know a lot of people have that sort of same romanticism about getting away from it all. And and to some degree, I think that's what drove a lot of people to say, well, I've been dreaming about this for so long and now I yep. can do it. Um, and then potentially there's been an, so there's aspiration, it's sort of like strange aspirational, like a aspire to leave <laughs> this expensive area that I'm already living in. And I've got the ability to, because of it, it's an expensive area, but there's also, um, you know, the idea that the demographic then has changed outside yeah. Sydney, you know, so you've got sort of a younger demographic now yeah. in a lot of regional areas, whereas p- previously you would have had a much older demographic retiring or just, you know semi-retiring at least so how is that you know are, are we picking up that i don't know is there any sort of discernible return to the city is there any data on whether that's been successful in in certain areas or certain uh demographics uh so it's going to take a while for us to kind of get data on those flows and if those flows start to return like mm. you hear anecdotes that people you know move to regional areas they find out oh it's great for a while but then it's a bit too sleepy i'm missing out on all these you know city benefits that i that i could have had but it's not it's not really showing i mean the the most striking data we can have is is prices right like if that mm. demand evaporates overnight we'll see it come through prices before we'll see data on on population flows um, and we're not we're not really seeing that yet um, what I will say, though, is that that, that demographic change, I, I think, is probably a good thing for regional areas. You think about yeah. um, younger mm. people with higher incomes, they're kind of demanding these gentrified um, services, yeah. so things like cafes and restaurants and yeah. things that, that can revitalize and, and turn kind of, you know, if you think about um, Hobart went from kind of a sleepy town to now it's like a, quite a cosmopolitan location. That's been a really, um, really positive thing for Hobart. Of course, they've had their <laughs> challenges in, in the housing market to catch up with that um, gentrification. Um, but that's that's the kind of thing. It's, it's also another point that I've made a few times is that regional areas actually relative to cities can build more homes relatively easily. Mm. Um, and that's a good thing in terms of making housing for all Australians, cheaper over the longer term. So we're up. I think the interesting thing with the reasons is that people like like want to see people like them. So I think that's why a lot of people didn't go there. Is that even if they had that idyllic, you know, view that they wanted to move down the south coast, they didn't do it because they're like, I don't know anyone down there. I don't know anyone who's done it. So 
I need to be this like trendsetter, you know, go against the 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 grain. But now that they've moved down there and or they've got friends that have moved out, they've visited their friends and then their friends are getting to a stage of, you know, wanting to buy something and they, they've got a connection there. Even if it's just one person that, that they can potentially follow and have. Um, and we've also seen it with family. So we had a, a client um, who moved to the Central Coast and then her sister moved um, and then her parents have now moved from, you know, south of Sydney up to the Central Coast because they had a baby. And yep. so that's like three households now after just one household. And so I think that's starting to happen now as well is that, you know, you're not, not the traditional first wave of people who are the first home buyer. It's the people following them um, because they're, the I guess, the key family that the family wants to be around. you know what I mean? It's going to entrench it more, isn't it? If, you, if all your friends and family move, then you, you, if you can't really change your mind, they will follow you. <laughs> Absolutely. I think those networks are super important. I mean, we saw that with those waves of um, migration north to Brisbane as well. Once some people knew people that were in Brisbane and said, actually, it's yeah. great. Um, you can you can move along. Um, yeah, I think that that's really important. It, it's also like that highlights a really interesting point about where people choose to live. Like people don't lay out a map and, and objectively say, this is the best you know town or location for me and my family to live. It's really okay. entwined <laughs> with where people they know, their family, um, yeah. where they, their historical connections are. And, and I think that's an important thing. People spreading out and, and giving information to people they know about different parts of the country, I think, is another big positive out of this kind of spreading out. One of the things, though, at REA is that you have all this access to search data. I mean, yeah. if, if anyone, you should be able to basically say, well, actually, this is where we see tides of interest, you know, um, whether those those that those searches and whether those, you know, clicking on, on individual properties actually translates into actual migrations or moving or not. Um, it, is there, I mean, uh, I, look, I can only imagine what you guys are digging into and, and, and looking into, but are you working on anything specific in that side of things rather than looking at the macro data? Yeah. You know, I, rather, rather, I should say rather than looking at ABS data. Yeah. Um, no, we look we look at our um, activity data on realestate.com.au uh, all the time. It's, it's super interesting. So we do see this pattern where um, people search at regions before they, they start to consider moving. And we see these big um, increases in search activity before, and that leads price activity and other kind of um, actual market activity indicators. And there's there's lots of fun stuff too. Like if um, like we've tracked um, when Neighbours is on in the UK, we get a whole <laughs> bunch of searches for Australian property from the UK. Uh, <laughs> oh right my God. That finishes. So fun, fun stuff like that. But also, yeah, it is, um, we're ab absolutely going to look into to do more work on how can we um, understand these kind of precursors to actually people moving and locating and what does that mean for prices and rents all across the country because we have this kind of um, this leading act like we can understand where people are thinking about going before they kind of do. I'm not sure if we were people in Australia watching the Bill or Coronation Street uh, <laughs> look for uh, properties in uh, in England, but um, we'll leave that one there. I mean, I with your search data, I um, you got your insights report like you you do that. I think you've only done it in June. I don't know if you haven't done one since. I couldn't find online when I was looking today. But what I was looking at when your insights from June is that you know the actual search data that I was looking at it, it's very similar to 2021. So 2021, you know, the heat of the market, everyone the FOMO, but you know 2020. Two was sort of similar search for sale across, you know, uh, to a little bit down on last year, but very similar to 2020, um, but still way up on 2018 and 2019. Is that what you're still finding, you know, in this latter part of 2022 where people are still 
like online and looking at property, yeah, they might not be making offers and um, and et cetera and, and be willing to transact, but they're actually still searching for what's happening in the market and and potentially, you know, ready to come in when they get the confidence to. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we're seeing. I, I mean, I, I say this anecdote um, a lot. It's like if you if you looked at all the market indicators about the property market at the moment and you didn't look at price, you'd say, actually, the market's chugging along really nicely. Um, <laughs> so w- what you've got is, I mean, I would say that I work at a, a listings portal, but but what you really got is, is our data showing that we've actually got a heap of people who are in those late stages of buying. And what we do is is we yeah. categorize um, searches by if we think that they are likely to make a purchase soon. And these are people that are clicking on lots of links. They're sending links to friends. They're looking at image carousels on multiple days. They're contacting agents. They're saving auctions, things like that. And so mm. we kind of track how many of those people we think are uh, in those late stages of purchasing. And they've come off a little bit, something like 10% um, relative to the end of last year, which was kind of the peak of the market. But still really high, still well above um, the pre-pandemic yeah. period 2019. Um, and we've just got this situation where we've got all these people still looking in the market seriously, but they just can't afford as much as they could a year ago. This is so interesting because we're seeing this on the ground. So you're seeing it in the cloud, we're seeing it on the ground. <laughs> and, and you know, and, and I've often I've said this to a number of people that we've had on the, on the podcast, agents, for instance, to say that the last property downturn i mean i'm you know i'm in sydney we're in sydney um you know it was the middle of 2017 to the middle of 2019 that that was pretty pretty quiet you go to an open house and often you could be the only one there right now we are not seeing that we are seeing still pretty good numbers at open houses they're pretty good attendances at auctions even yes sure you got less people registering to bid but there's interest you know in a slow market previously you go to an auction and honestly you'd have the neighbor you'd have the vendor you'd have the <laughs> one registered bidder you'd have all the agents and all the other agents in the area there because they've got nothing else on because let's face it nothing's happening and that would be based and maybe me because i can't help it i love going to auctions would be basically the only amount of people that were interested in this auction whereas now you're getting crowds they may not do much um can you put that down to anything because like you say it's so weird if you didn't look at it's what's happening in prices you'd think yeah there's heaps of interest out there for the property at the moment yeah i think i think it's the big divergence so we've got sellers on one hand um who maybe saw their neighbor uh, sell earlier in the year, late last year, and they've kind of got those that anchor for what they think their, their house is worth. Um, and you've got buyers who can who can borrow literally twenty five percent less than they could a year ago. Um, like that's that's the extent of the the interest rate increases that we've seen two point eight five percentage points so yep. far. Yeah, um, with more expected next month, it, you can actually for a given income borrow twenty five percent less than you could. Yeah, um, so that's that's substantial. Um, and I think. It has been a case of kind of sellers not recognizing that the prices that were achievable earlier in the year and late last year just aren't achievable anymore. Um, but we haven't we haven't seen prices fall um, substantially over the past couple of months, and we've seen um, what you wouldn't consider a, a strong level of activity, but a but a pretty moderate, um, reasonable level of activity. So sales are getting made um, at these kind of what you'd consider high prices given the interest rate environment. Um, so it's an interesting time for the market, and it's going to be interesting to see how it kind of goes into next year as we see um, kind of all those fixed rate rollovers come through and everyone's um, mortgage repayments yep. update and um, pre-approvals update, and we kind of enter the new year in this, potentially in this environment where there aren't as many. I mean, if you're an upgrader and you're getting a huge amount of equity from your previous sale, 
potentially you don't care quite so much about the higher interest rate environment because you're not borrowing up to the hilt. But as we get more, fewer and fewer of those kind of buyers and more and more of the kind of your first-time buyer, your, your kind of constrained buyer who's up against that ADLVR limit, um, that's where maybe that borrowing capacity continues to affect prices more and so more. So I, I think really interesting talking through um, what REA, like to back up, so we, like, like Veronica said, anecdotally, I think what's happened this year has been really hard for buyers, um, you know, because, you know, especially the first-time buyer is that, you know, they missed out in 2020, they missed out in 2021, so they, they're burnt by all that. And they're, like, freaking out. And they're like, oh, God, I'm so glad I didn't buy. But, well, actually, how much can I borrow? And, oh, actually, that's not as much as I need. Um, and, you know, I can't buy in that suburb that I wanted to buy because that's only four and 10% and my borrowing capacity is four and 25. Um, like, is my pre-approval valid? You know, what's going to happen with rates? And so you know, buyers have had to sort of readjust their strategy, I guess. And, you know, and pre-approvals weren't valid for a whole period there. Like, mm. you know, unless it was within 30 days, like the pre-approval wasn't worth the paper it was written on. So yeah, well. I think that's what buyers have done. But can you see that also match to how people have searched? So, you know, a uh, customer who's logged in on REA was searching 1.5 to, to, to 2, <laughs> is now searching 900 to 1.2 and has had a, a big percentage of buyers are having to switch locations. So the, the brief is – and the problem is when you switch locations, that's like a – it's a whole other minefield, right? you got to now figure out what's the busy roads, what's the best streets, especially if it's areas you haven't lived before. And that takes a while to get those reference points. And that's why a lot of buyers be not willing to transact is there's just – haven't got that those reference points. Can you see that with search data? How people are big portion of first home buyers are switching their search criteria. Yeah, yeah, and we saw that throughout the pandemic too. We saw the distribution mm. of searches shift up with prices, and that's that was substantially a, a borrowing capacity story. <laughs> but the other way, people mm. could afford more, so they were searching that's at so higher true. levels. But yeah, and you can see you can see people move locations, um, and I think. I think that's healthy too, like both locations and different property types. Um, I, yeah. I think one of the other big stories about that, you know, that search for bigger homes, um, to some extent that's left like things like units relatively cheap. I mean, the, the gap between units and house prices is larger yeah. than it's ever been. So for first-time buyers and investors, the, the, um, the types of buyers that tend to buy those types of properties, um, that kind of puts them in, in a pretty good position relatively. So. Yeah, we definitely see those things shifting around um, and buyers, yeah, as, as borrowing capacity gets constrained, I think they think of innovative ways to get around that and that's that's changing changing what, they, what they're looking at. What about on the flip side of that, yeah. seller intentions? Yeah. Um, do you have, I mean, with buyers' intentions, you've obviously, you, you can track what they do before they buy. Can you track what sellers do before they sell, before they list? So, so we have some kind of pre-listing um, activity data, um, kind of because we can look at um, so agents use our platform um, to check valuations of properties. So we can see um, how many agents are kind of looking, checking the our estimates of the value of properties. Obviously, to feed that through to sellers and give them an idea of what things might sell for. So um, we've we've also seen that um, hold up reasonably well. Um, so it, it's it's. It's less so. I mean, we obviously are interested in in which which homeowners might transition into being home sellers and then upgrade because that's an important part of people's housing journey. And and the way we try and think about this is is we want we want people to always be thinking about like where they're at in their, their housing stage and 
and where they can be in their next housing stage and help them along the way, right? If you're if you're thinking about selling, you need lots of things to fall into place. You need finance, you need an agent, you need to buy a new property, you need to go through both the set searching for the purchasing side and the selling side. It's it's there's a lot of there's a lot of steps there. So that's what we're yeah. trying to we try and help people along because I think all of our um our research with sellers is that I think it's just the the burden of things that you have to do is the thing that kind of keeps people from making that next step and, and going to that next um, part of their property journey. So, I mean, that's maybe sounds like a bit of jargon, but I we're trying to simplify all that. That's what um, our goal on realestate.com.au is making it easier for people to be in the home that's kind of right for them at, at their life stage. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. And if you'd like a 30% discount plus free postage for my book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property, Even Though You're Scared Shitless, and yes, I'm a potty mouth, use the code ELEPHANT at the checkout, veronicamorgan.com.au. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au So I mean, on the seller side, can you see that, obviously, I'm not an agent, so I don't know exactly how it works behind the scenes, but let's say you sell the place. I'm sure you have to update REA. I sold it, right? Um, And then you could just withdraw the listing, you know, take the ad down, right? Um, And can you see that, you know, that, that, portion of properties that are just going back onto the rental market, right? Because that's ultimately a vendor that's maybe not forced to sell or wants to sell, but it only wants to sell for a certain price. Well, it's just not getting any offers, can't sell. But, you know, that's really then just becoming more rental stock, right? So it's not really a, a big issue because they're not getting fire sale prices. So the market's sort of got a, a stress test or a buffer there where a lot of vendors are saying, well, I'm not going to sell unless I get a certain price. So can you see that withdrawal rate off your site really starting to pick up rather than people just having to force the sales through i haven't i haven't looked at that specifically we, we can track that um but it hasn't i haven't heard that from anyone as as it is as becoming more common um it's definitely taking longer to sell homes um yeah. and i think that's a key part of that is, is well again all of this all of this context is that 2020 and 2021 were just so exceptionally hot um, <laughs> that kind of having that as your reference period is, is not a good starting point. But um, yeah, properties were selling so fast, particularly in regional areas, um, that things would go up. They'd sell you know within a week, which is you know very very quick for for a property listing. Um, I think I think the rental point you make is a really good one because I think part of the reason why we're not seeing prices falling anywhere near to the same degree that we've seen borrowing capacity falling is the fact that the rental market shows that underlying housing demand is really strong and your alternative to buying a home is is renting yeah. and if renting prices rent prices are going up really quickly um that makes how um buying more attractive right so there, there's this inherent balance between the purchase market and the rent market and i think the rental market at the moment shows us why um 
why prices aren't falling to the same extent that um that borrowing capacity is. that's an interesting way of looking at it and we will get into the rental market um in a moment but before we do that there's something i've always been curious about i mean coming from the rba and not the rba models you know what's going to happen with the property market as a response to interest rate movements and we um we actually write a report every year called the Fuller Forecaster Report, where we 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 call these forecasters to account, and mostly they're they're wanting. But so the RBA sort of makes these calls and says, right, well, you know, we model out that prices are going to do this if we do that, um, and yet it's not a direct line. There seems to be this very simplistic uh, belief held in many quarters that you put rates up, prices instantly go down, and vice versa. But there's a lot more involved than just purely interest rates. And, we, of course, we understand that it would be very simplistic to think that, you know, the, the cost of borrowing money and, and the access to borrowing money doesn't have a, a direct impact on the property market. But it's not as simple as just saying, well, rates go up, so therefore prices fall. What, what goes into the RBA's price modelling? That's what I really want to know. <laughs> uh, so they've actually released um, their modelling um, to the public. So they have papers that outline, they've got a couple of papers, um, one's um, called the Tulip Saunders model after two people that, that wrote a model of the Australian housing market. So it um, yeah. it's kind of a fully featured model of, of um, housing development, housing prices, um, population kind of feeds into that. And um, so it's kind of, it, it kind of updates as, as prices go up, people build more homes, that puts downward pressure on prices and so on, tries to balance that out. And then, then the RBA has got its kind of full macro model, which they call um, they call Martin after Martin Place, which is the, the street where the RBA is, um, which is, they're fundamentally very similar models. Um, but it's hard to, you're exactly right. Interest rates are a very important component of housing prices, but they're in no way the only thing that affects housing prices. And if you think about I think the best way to explain this is that interest rates don't change in a vacuum. The RBA is responding to the economy and the housing market is a big part of the economy mm-hmm. as a whole. So if you think about why is the RBA increasing interest rates now, it's because the economy is performing really well. Unemployment's at kind of a 40 or 50 year low. Um, we've got inflation increasing and they're expecting high wages growth. And high wages growth is the other is the thing on the other side of that borrowing capacity. So higher borrowing capacity will put, push higher um, in housing prices higher. So while the RBA kind of presents these um, very academic, um, like just the isolated effect of interest rate increases on housing prices, which are negative, and I think everyone accepts that, that never happens in practice. You never just get a random shock to interest rates that pushes up everyone's borrowing costs, um, not in an environment of the economy performing really well, which is a positive for housing prices. If you think back to the last time interest rates increased very quickly, 2004, 2006, um, we actually saw housing prices go up when we saw interest rates go up by more than um, two percentage points. So um, it, it shows you that these other factors, the, the factors that the RBA is responding to when it raises rates are also really important for housing as well. And there's obviously a lot of pressure on inflation that can't be controlled by mortgage holders. Um, and the rental price growth is actually one area with no downward pressure on the horizon. So, I mean, that's just one example. I mean, we've got energy costs. We've got a whole bunch of things that have got nothing to do with mortgage holders. And, and yet there's, you know, we've got, what, 20% of our, how's that, $2 trillion worth of debt or something on almost $10 trillion worth of property. So, you know, you've got this this really big clunky lever used that's really only pinching on on a, a proportion of our, our population. Is this resolvable? I mean, is there ever going to, can you see ever a time when 
you know, interest rates are not used to try to play with the um, inflation. You just explained the difficulty in, in conducting monetary policy. Um, <laughs> that's why they've got, you know, 100 economists on Martin Place. Um, so, so the yeah, answer so the is no. <laughs> well, <laughs> just keep doing it. Actually, like, interest rate targeting of inflation is relatively new. Like, that's a 1990s invention. So um, I think it's worth keeping in context that we're still kind of trying to figure out like while we think we're better at managing the economy, this is still a relatively new art slash science, depending on how you consider it. Mm. Um, mm. So yeah, it's difficult, right? Um, we know, and the RBA knows that that lowering demand doesn't take away supply side pressures. Yeah. Um, the difficulty is trying to figure out what components of inflation are due to supply um, restrictions and what are due to, to higher demand. And uh, that kind of maps out exactly the struggles that the RBA has had this year. So earlier in the year, I think their viewpoint was that substantially most of the inflation that they were seeing was supply driven and we can just wait for those supply pressures to, um, to recede. Uh, and then it became clear that actually, no, this is more broad-based. There's a lot of demand in the economy. Um, the labor market continues to perform incredibly strongly. Um, and so they've they've had to move to understand that actually there's a lot of demand that needs to be dampened and that's the component of inflation they're trying to they're trying to push back on so i mean it would have been interesting joining rea over the last few years and seeing um the buyer preferences changes and search data and the growth and all that data set but it also would have been interesting to work at the rba i mean you know seeing what happened in 2020 2021 with super low rates uh, and then the craziness of 2022 and the the huge increases in rates, right? Um, it, what's happened there at the RBA? I mean, just talking, I guess, you know, as a personal opinion, um, you know, what is it surprised you? You know, how heavy-handed they went in reducing rates, um, knowing what they knew beforehand and the impact that had on property prices and the wealth effect and keeping them as low as they were or and then the, the, the huge increases this year and a lot earlier than they were telling the society. So... Is that surprise you at all, knowing that you worked there for 10 years, that that, that, that sort of response? Not, I, I wasn't surprised. Um, I think broadly my view is um, their response was appropriate. I mean, if you think back to forecasts uh, in early 2020, um, and I was still at the RBA then, um, okay. there were widespread concerns about um, unemployment hitting 10%. Um, borrowers just fundamentally not being able to pay loans en masse. Um, and you remember JobKeeper, which I view as a very, very good program that essentially meant that, that people could keep paying their mortgages, people could keep paying their rents. Mm. Um, we had, you know, um, like rental eviction freezes. Um, you remember all these exceptional policies. And so this is in a world where people were thinking, actually, this is the worst case scenario for the economy and and the housing market, right? The, the worst case scenario for the housing market is a big shock to people's ability to pay their mortgages, which means people have to sell their homes mm. en masse, which leads to fire sale prices. That's the like the financial stability concern that the RBA has. So in that environment, the RBA responded with every tool they had in the arsenal and they invented a few more tools. And I think <laughs> that that was incredibly appropriate. Um, it was always going to be difficult to unwind, particularly those exceptional tools, things like forward guidance, um, things like um, you know yeah. lowering yields uh, on uh, like longer dated bond products. The the kind of technicalities of what they were trying to do is is basically provide as much stimulus as they possibly could to the economy because, in everyone's view, and it wasn't just the RBA's view, the economy was was cratering. So um, I think in that 
respect, I think they, they acted really strongly. And it's this uncertainty coming out of COVID that has been a really difficult time. I think my, my criticism is around their communication about the risks um, <laughs> in that they talked they, they talked very strongly about their expectations for when interest rates would normalize that didn't recognize the fact that there were a lot of risks coming out of that period. So Yeah, it was a bit um, tragic for a particular lot of first home buyers, I think, who who bought with sort of a bit of gung-ho confidence thinking, ah, it's all good, it's going to stay low till 2024, and then, yeah. hang on a minute, it, this is a bit sooner than I expected. With on, Back on the rental thing, um, how you know you've written this really interesting article really about what's underneath the rental data and we're going to include the link in the show notes how do you measure rental prices and how do you explain i guess the different stories in regional versus capital markets so i think the rental markets are really a really interesting one and and it um Partly it's interesting because what it, it, it's it's easier for, I think, renters to move around the country and readjust themselves than it is homeowners yeah, because you're not paying stamp sure. duty, mm. um, tend to be younger, um, people yeah, people are more able to move for, kind of for workers, renters and things like that. So you've got kind of, it's, it's a bit of a leading indicator on what's happening in the housing market as a whole. And I think what it shows is that as we went into this COVID period, um, for many reasons, People wanted to be in smaller households. They want more people wanted to live by themselves, not in share houses, yeah. um, not in bigger groups. Um, so household sizes got smaller. And part of the thing that facilitated that is the lack of demand for Im- from immigration. So we had kind of thousands mm. of people not coming into the house into Australia that would have otherwise come into Australia. Um, and part of that that reduction in demand that would have occurred was taken up with people spreading out and taking up more houses mm. for each person than they had before. Um, so we saw that both in the purchase market. So people who own their homes were in smaller, smaller, uh, smaller households, but definitely it was much more prevalent in in the renting um, mm. side. So some, something like I think we created demand equivalent to about ninety thousand extra houses just from renters, uh, rental households splitting apart, which wow. is which is huge. Right, so over not overnight, but over a period of kind of six to nine months, we had kind of ninety thousand extra households that needed to be housed, um, and a, a lot of that pressure—not a lot of that pressure, but a substantial amount of that pressure—went to regional areas. And and regional areas, if you think, are actually markets that were never that, that well able to handle that additional pressure. They don't tend to have lots of additional dwellings or um, can yeah. can adjust quickly to that additional demand. So we saw this kind of. At the start of COVID, this really interesting like divergence in markets. So we saw um, capital city markets loosen a lot. So rental vacancy rates increased mm. substantially, yeah. particularly yeah. in Melbourne, where there were lots of apartments yeah. in the inner city. But regional areas tightened considerably. So they went in completely opposite directions, which is which is very unusual. Um, and now we've seen regional areas stay really tight as people have kind of continued to move to regional areas. And broadly speaking, any rental comes up, it, it gets filled almost immediately. Uh, and over the past year or so, as cities have opened up and immigration has come back, we've seen capital city markets uh, start to catch up. And and what's interesting here is the capital city markets are now tighter than they were before the pandemic. So it's not just a case of this is a normalisation. This is actually um, a bit of payback for a the fact that we're demand that we need more houses to house everyone in these smaller household groups than we had before COVID. Um, and b we didn't build as many houses as we could have throughout the pandemic. So um, there was a bit of a gap. So a lot of like high density um, development was paused at the start of 2020. Um, that we did build a lot of detached housing. So 
so it's like separate houses on um, in suburban areas, particularly on the outskirts of cities. Um, so there's a bit of divergence there. So so we built a lot of a lot of um, separate houses, but didn't build as many apartments as we would have yeah. otherwise. And we're still trying to. I think we're going to have to catch up over the next couple of years. And of course, all these supply constraints are, are limiting that to some extent. Well, yeah, I mean, building, just getting builders, uh, building materials, mm. um, you yeah. know. Construction costs up Construction, we're but, building freeways yeah. and airports and um, all sorts of things that take construction workers away from sort of things like uh, residential builders, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's just, that's the thing with supply, isn't it? And even selling your property. Like I talked about this with, with clients is that, you know, if you want to enter the market as a buyer, you could do so within 24 hours. Like it's. You could wake up that morning, you could speak to a broker or walk into a bank, you could get your documents and you could be going to open homes that weekend and potentially buy. Or you might even, you know, some people are, are that confident with their, their financial situations, they go and buy without pre-approval or speaking to a bank, um, <laughs> which is uh, astounds me, but it definitely happens. Um, <laughs> but it just doesn't happen that with, with sellers, right? Everything just slows down, you know, I've got to get the place, um, you know, fixed up, I've got to get the the plumber in and the tiler in and the painter and then and everyone's got lead delays and you, you miss a few things and so even just getting it ready for sale takes a long time i mean is is that sort of some of the things you can see on the portal i guess um where there's like an appraisal but it takes three to six months for that property to ever actually become a listing where you know because they might initially put their de lead details in you know um, can you see that sort of data as well, where you just sort of see that the the lead time or the the conversion rate of people doing appraisals um, is really dropping? As in, a lot of people are just you know getting the numbers from the agent and then not listing. Can you see that stuff? So um, I haven't looked specifically at kind of appraisal like lead times, but what we do see is is that planning um, of people trying to pick like the perfect time to get their, their house on the market. And we see, we so he, a good example is the um, additional public holiday we had for um, for Queen Victoria, uh, sorry, Queen Elizabeth, <laughs> Queen Victoria, some time, some time ago. Um, Been watching too much of The Crown. <laughs> yeah. Um, is that that actually had a, a meaningful impact on, on listing activity, is that that, um, extra public holiday because it disrupted when people were thinking about putting putting their house on the market. Um, these things these things matter a lot, and and they matter a lot, especially going to kind of the spring selling season when a lot of people like to list property. Um, so, <laughs> so are you putting down the slow spring, the slower than normal spring we have, down to the fact we had a pub, an unexpected public holiday in October? It was October, September, September, <laughs> September. Yeah, so it definitely. It definitely had an effect on September numbers. I don't think we think those listings are, are like didn't happen. I think we just think they shifted either earlier <laughs> yeah. or later. Uh, and we see that same thing when you see um, Easter and Anzac Day um, co-align. So you get one big, long, um, like double public holiday two weekends in a row. Um, you see that have a big um, downturn in in activity you as can well. and, see and you understand why right you know that sellers know that buyers aren't going to be around to look at their house totally so why would you list your house then we see mm. i mean i track um a few things that i track and one of one of them is actually the auction listing numbers in sydney um and when you plot it out a, on a graph over the year you can clearly see i can i don't even need to see the dates you know that's when easter was that's when the june long weekend yep. was that's when the october long week you know it's it's really obvious and then you get your super saturdays everyone's trying to cram in before before one of these yeah. events and it's like so yeah. difficult so predictable yeah 
Yeah, it's no. That's another reason. Like these markets are like fascinating to watch on a week by week basis. Just how they kind of respond to real world events, and it's not. Yeah, we don't think of you know in your standard economic model where everyone's kind of just a, a random person that does things when it suits them. It's not not the case, right? The people are kind of guided through these funnels, as you say, right? There's a whole lot of things you've got to get into a line to get the house on the market, and that's a whole production process that goes on before you see the listing on our site. Just. So Ari, I think that spring didn't sprung, I guess. Like, um, you know, when you look at sort of listing numbers, I was looking at uh, not a competitor of your different sort of, you know, like CoreLogic data, right? You look at, um, you know, new listings and you just see it's like, you know, 2019, 2020, you know, 2021, like it takes off in October, November, and then it's just that boom, it does it. it new listings just didn't come. Does, is Ari, I guess, a bit disappointed that there wasn't more listings over the last few months, but maybe you weren't surprised as well given the uncertainty you know so you're unlikely to want to make big life decisions and big moves when you're uncertain about lots of things yeah i think um yeah we, we obviously watch this really closely and and our, our view is that it's kind of too early to tell where um what where listing conditions are, are at in terms of what that bodes for kind of the rest of the year and into next year just for for a number of reasons i think comparing to both 2020 and 2021 the this time of the year was both coming out of lockdowns for, for sydney and melbourne mm. um, yeah. so there was a lot of listing activity that was pent up yep. there um so they're not really fair comparison so it, it's always hard in the property market what's a, like what's a normal year take right? everything back to 2019 it's like you just yeah. wipe out the last two years but even yeah. then, that wasn't really... Time, 2019 said, was a funny year. Because the election, it wasn't a normal year even. It was a massive change year. <laughs> and like, that yeah. was the credit crunch too, 2018, 2019, mm. were, were, were quite Let's slow. go back to so. 2016, perhaps. <laughs> and 15. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so while we're on that point... I think the point, thing that we're watching... Uh, for, for listings is um, it's still the case. I mean, if we go back to prices that, that a lot of sellers have built up a lot of equity over the past two years, prices are still well up on 2020 levels. Mm. And that equity is the thing that enables people to upgrade. Mm. So I think there's a lot of people who are in a situation now to upgrade that they wouldn't have been if prices hadn't increased. So more people are in a position to upgrade than they have been in the past, which I think is a positive that we're looking at for listings. Um, but we're still waiting to see kind of how the rest of this yeah. Oh, you can so, so tell really... that you've actually jumped to the dark side. You got a positive yeah. spin on that. I'm so <laughs> impressed. <laughs> so with the um, the equity thing, I think it's so true. I think it, you've got that equity unless if you can get the equity out uh, and buy something else because you've got the buying capacity to do it. Or you've got, or you've got the equity if you can sell. Uh, yep. I think you know things like the stamp duty change, for example, you know allows a chance of selling because you know a lot of people would love to have upgraded, but then they know that when they try to sell their property over the last six months, they wouldn't have got a great price. They potentially might not have sold it. Um, that equity number uh, would be nothing what they would have saw last year, right? Um, but I mean, I think you're right. As soon as people have the confidence to potentially sell, they know they've got the equity there. They know they've got the borrowing capacity to upgrade, yep. and they're not just the last thing they want to do is sell their property to try to upgrade and not be able to buy something. So it's like that Mexican standoff and I'm not going to yep. sell unless I can find properties I really want to buy. And so I think in these sort of times of uncertainty, it's just, everyone just sort of sits on their hands and um, and waits. But it's sort of it has to come from the bottom up, I think. When the, the first home buyer starts to wanting to sell, they list their property, they take their gains, they buy off the upgrader, the upgrader then sells and et cetera. Yep. And I think that's what the power of that stamp duty policy is, is that you'll have like an upward pressure on prices from the bottom up. It's just whether it sticks around if Labor win the election. Um, yeah, so I I agree with that. I think like there's always lots of uncertainty in the market. I feel like there's a bit less uncertainty now 
there was uncertainty um, in the middle of this year because it was unclear how much interest rates would rise. We kind of got interest rates. In, <laughs> now we, we know, know. That increased. <laughs> as as bad as that is, kind of for for buyers and and people wanting to borrow a lot of money. Um, at, at least you kind of know where you stand. Um, yeah, I think um, the the stamp duty and first home buyer um, policies. Yeah, are definitely going to be a positive for the bottom of the market, and that's in um, New South Wales. Just in case anyone's listening from elsewhere, yeah. so New South Wales has just um, made it possible for first-time buyers to choose to pay land tax instead of stamp duty, which is really important for first-time buyers because they tend to be very credit constrained. So um, they generally, um, to stereotype, they're up against that ADLVR limit often, um, and so they're any stamp duty on top of that, they have to save. And this gives them an opportunity to amortize that over the, the purchase of the home. And it's actually, it's very generous. Mm. Um, you end up paying, unless you stay in the home um, more than 30 years or something, you end up paying less tax than you would under stamp duty. Yeah. Um, so so it's it's very, very good for first-time buyers. It's going to give a lot of demand um, for that that bottom part of the market. It's it actually quite generous on that that respect as well. I think it's up to $1.5 yeah. million. Dollars. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the contrast before is a good one. I mean, as we talked about before, we're not seeing those those 2018-2019 conditions where they just weren't buyers, like people didn't want to buy because of because of credit restrictions. We're seeing lots of buyers in the market. So I think sellers, um, although this is, again, it's a confidence thing, I think sellers can be more confident at the moment that there are buyers on that side to be able to get a sale if they are looking to upgrade, um, a bit more so than they were kind of in, in previous downturns. Yeah, a bit more than, say, June, July, August. You know, that was a, yeah. it was a really, like, crickets. You know, everyone was freaking out. What's my borrowing yes. capacity? I'm not going to buy. Prices are falling. And I think yeah. people are starting to see on the ground go, actually, you know what? I do need to get on with it. I have a must-do this at some point. I don't want to get burnt. And I think that that buyer is definitely entering back, the must-do upgrade or the must-do first-home buyer, um, rather than just the opportunistic sort of uh, buyer that's, you know, bargain hunter that was trying to buy a few months ago. Um, yep. So, Paul, have you got a property dumbo for us, a story that, uh, a little tale that we can uh, talk about that might be a bit humorous as well would be good? <laughs> I don't I don't have a specific um, example in mind, but I think the, the mistake I see mostly in property purchasing is, um, is, an, is an overwhelming fascination with a particular home. Um, <laughs> so, people just get fixated on a particular home. And I know this is your, you know, your... your family's home for the rest of time or you know maybe the next 45 years um but it it, it goes to just um either bidding against the seller and not not letting the seller come to market um so i've heard stories of people sellers making uh, kind of we'll sell at this price or we'll just we'll just keep the home you know things that maybe aren't as um aren't as realistic as as the buyer in in the moment thinks um or or it comes down to if if houses pass in at auction, which is happening more and more now, is not not recognizing that actually the power kind of shifts to the buyer at that point um, and not to bid against yourself um, after the, the house sells in, it's a, uh, passes in. Sorry. It's a classic example, actually. A lot of people um, in a hot market, they're all dying to use a buyer's agent because they really want to get an edge. And in a slower market, oh, yeah, no, we're good. We're good. We'll do it ourselves. And I have to say, <laughs> some of the, the deals I've seen people negotiate for themselves under those circumstances, they're just ill-equipped. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to actually use those things, you know, the conditions to their advantage. Um, and I do hear some funny stories sort of off the record from a few agents uh, who were quite happy to share about how they fleeced a buyer who was just had decided, you know, and – 
that that's the house for them. And then also what people don't understand when they're at an auction, even if it's passed in, even if they, you know, some people do get a bit cocky and they actually walk away and they'll, or they'll dig their heels in. But quite often they think, oh, you know, what does it hurt? I'm here already. It's sunk cost. You know, I've already invested all this money and time and energy getting here. Um, all right then. And they're also unmatched against an agent that, that negotiates for a living. Does this you know. every weekend, mm. yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. It's a it's a scary proposition for buyers. Um, people don't buy houses all that often. That's as you say, that's a buyer's agent speciality. Um, but yeah, no, you've got to recognise the the experience imbalance and the information imbalance at that point. Yeah, um, it's it's a tough position to be in. Very much so. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been a really interesting chat. Really appreciated some of the insights and so the the nuances and and some little uh, I guess the lifting a little little bit on the um, RBA for us as well. <laughs> No, fantastic. No, a fantastic chat. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.